was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to announce my interview with Broadway choreographer Sam Pinkleton. Sam is currently the movement director for Macbeth on Broadway, but he also served as choreographer for Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and Amelie, as well as being movement director for the Heidi Chronicles, Heisenberg, Machinal, and Significant Other. He also assisted Mark Brokaw in directing The Lions on Broadway. Off-Broadway, his credits in include choreographing Dave at Arena Stage, Soft Power at The Public, and directing Runaways at Encores. So now, without further ado, Sam Pinkleton. So I would love to start by asking you, um, how did you first become interested in theater? Oh gosh, um, I want to know how you became first interested in theater. That's so much more interesting. Uh, uh, well, I was a kid who spent a lot of time alone and uh, didn't like a lot of the things that, you know, a lot of kids liked at my school. And my mom was very aggressive and kind of forced me to go to an arts high school. Oh. I didn't want to do because I was like, I just want to be like the horrible kids who are mean to me. And she was like, no way, you have to go to this arts high school. So she made me go. And like within three days of being there, I was like, this is for me. This is like everything, this like solves all of the problems. So I became like really aggressively a theater theater kid in high school, um, which it seems like perhaps you are as well. Yes, yes. Um, and, and somehow never really looked back. Yeah. And growing up in, I believe it was Virginia, did, were you exposed to a lot of theater? Did you see theater or? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I was very lucky. I had a, um, I, there were some like local theaters around that my grandmother, for whatever reason, would take me to. And like we had a, there was, I, I lived kind of near Richmond, Virginia, which is like a kind of a second tier city on national tours. And so we would always get like the, you know, like the non-equity tour <laughs> of cats. <laughs> And my grandmother like would always take me to those tours, which was like my favorite thing in the world. Um, so I, I like knew it was a thing that existed from a very young age, but it always seemed very like, like you can't do that as your job. Um, so, but I, I, was, I was very lucky to not be discouraged by my family. Yeah. That makes sense. Like I had a kind of weird childhood, but I I'm, at no point was anybody like, "Don't do that," uh, which which meant a lot. Yeah. And so, when did that shift from not really thinking it was something you could do to pursuing it? As a um, I guess I uh, I mean, I I got really obsessed in high school, uh, and because I went to this arts high school, it like tricks you into thinking that it's your job because you're doing like 26 shows at once. Like it's, it, so I sort of like developed that uh, kind of endurance for it, I guess. And um, applied to NYU, which I was like, I'm not gonna get into NYU and I certainly can't afford it, but like, it's what I wanna do. So I, I'm just, I have to. And uh, I applied to NYU and I got into NYU and then I decided to be incredibly irresponsible and reckless and just like figure out a way to pay for it with student loans, which I can't say I recommend um, just if that's coming your way. Uh, but being at NYU like made me take it seriously. And in some ways um, it was less about NYU with all respect to that place and more about just being in New York. Like yeah. I, I got to move to New York when I was like 17 and I 
I really used my time outside of school. Like I saw everything. I saw everything, which I bet you do too. Um, and that, that like kind of, I think, gently informed me like, oh, there's a lot of people who do this. And also there's a lot of people who do this a lot of different ways, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which, which kind of opened up the possibilities of what I wanted to do. Cause I thought I wanted to be a performer, um, which I lost track of very, very early on. Yeah. But so I'd love to ask about a show that you did do as a performer, which was a funny thing happened on the way. Oh <laughs> Your Googling is so intense. <laughs> you know, all of the skeletons, what would you like to know about it? Well, um, what was it like to have that early performing experience? And did it make you want to continue performing or was it the opposite? Oh, God, no. Oh. Um, I mean, what it was like was, so I was in this incredible class at NYU where my classmates were Ali Stroker and Sheena Taub and Rachel oh. Bloom and Skylar Aston and Alex Brightman. And I mean, like our class was insane. Like this is a totally insane class. And they also, all of the people I just said, conveniently are also lovely people. And so when you graduate from NYU, like at NYU, I was like, I don't want to be a performer. This is not for me. I want to go make weird stuff and direct and stuff. But then you graduate and all of your friends are like going to auditions. And like, cause I, I only was friends with performers. And so I, it was a little bit like, well, I guess I have to go to auditions too. Right, like that's what you do. You like, you're like 18 or I guess you're like 21 and then you're like auditioning. So I did that, but I knew it It always felt like kind of demoralizing to me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also I could like, I, I don't think I was very good at it. Like I, I but I, I sort of tricked my way. I mean, I guess I didn't trick my way. I auditioned for this, this production and I got cast and I got my equity card. Um, in a way that was like, seemed very illegal. Like I got paid almost nothing until the last two weeks and then they gave me my equity card, which I, I hope they don't still do that. It's, it's basically exploitation. Um, and I did this like very traditional production of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that was run by very nice people. And it ran for like three months. And I think I was very bad in it. And the director gave me a horrible time. Oh. I was sort of like, um, I was sort of like, I, like oh, in doing a long run, I was like, oh, nothing about this is using my imagination. Nothing about this is like asking for me to think about things differently and on a day-to-day -day level. And I don't say this at all to like judge what acting is. Like my gosh, acting is so hard and, and there's so many genius people who do it. But it didn't play to my strengths, if that makes sense. Yeah. Both talents, but also like my sense of um, control <laughs> and also like kind of like uh, my like ADHD. Like it just wasn't, um, it really made me feel like I was going insane. And like the, I, I have no memories of being in the show. I just remember like meeting a lot of really nice people. Like my friend Emily played opposite me and we met on that and like, we're still pals and she's in Town now. Oh. So, um, but it, 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 it like, I knew immediately I didn't want to do it. And I, I did like, I think two more shows like that after, because, you know, the other weird thing that like nobody talks about is like, yes, working in the theater is hard. And also if you're lucky enough to, you're making a living, you know, I had health insurance as an actor when I was 21, which is unheard of. So like, there was a part of me that was like, I have to keep doing this because it's like a better job than working at Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, but that's a terrible reason to be an actor. Like it's so hard. Like I feel so embarrassed saying that, but I, I did a few more shows until I kind of had to draw a hard line and was like, you have to think about what actually, what you actually would enjoy. And, and then I stopped acting and like, you know, when I was like 22 and, you know, took a giant pay cut basically to, to like commit to trying to build a career doing something that was better for me. Yeah. That was a really long answer, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, no, it was interesting. And so once you sort of fully decided that you wanted to be a director and choreographer, how do you sort of make, um, make a living like that? How do you sort of begin in that way? 
I mean, making a living in theater is really hard. And I hope that all of the people you've talked to that are much, much more famous than me discover <laughs> that too. Um, I mean, I, you know, I did not come from like independent wealth at all. And so like, you know, I, when I started trying to be a director and a choreographer, I was like assisting and, you know, I was being very bold. I was doing exactly what you're doing. I was writing to strangers and being like, Hey, like, mind if I like hang out and watch your thing. And, you know, people were responsive to that. And, but I was getting paid zero or a thousand dollars. And that, you know, doesn't keep the lights on when you're like 23 and living alone in New York city. Um, so through like basically all of my twenties, I did anything I could to make money. Um, like the first Broadway show I did as a choreographer, I babysat the morning of my opening night. Um, just because like, I, it was impossible to like, it, for, for me at least, and this is different for everybody, but for me, like the idea of just like diving headfirst into a life in the theater was logistically impossible um but I knew that I really wanted to do it and so I just like worked 16 jobs and uh you know eventually like I remember so vividly the first like when I joined the union when I joined SDC the first show I choreographed like had a paycheck that had a comma in it and I was like oh I this could be something different and and you know and I've been so lucky to kind of work somewhat consistently since that moment um but you know it's I don't I don't think I know anybody who doesn't think that every job is their last <laughs> yeah. yeah and so did you have any choreographers and directors either of the time or of an earlier time who were influences on you or people you want to be like emulate? yeah big time I don't know about emulate but um I had a few and they they are all sort of very different I mean I I um the first answer all, always out of my mouth is Liz Suedos. Liz was my oh, teacher yeah. at NYU. Um, Liz, I assume you know who Liz Suedos is. Yeah. Um, thank you for knowing who Liz Suedos <laughs> is. Please tell everyone else your age to know who Liz Suedos <laughs> is. Um, she was, uh, uh, she was like totally in a league of her own. She was like a radical and and uh, and is the person who I think kind of taught me how to be an artist, and um, to this day has really sculpted my values in a rehearsal process and how I like to make things. And like, I think of her as sort of my number one teacher. Um, and I also worked with a choreographer called Dan Safer, who's a little bit outside of the theater world. Mm, that's unfair of me to say. He is, a, he's just like a total original who's like kind of created his own path. And he's now like a professor at MIT. Um, and he, he basically, like my idea of choreography was so narrow. It was like learning steps from someone. And he like obliterated that idea for me. Like he taught me that choreography can mean anything and that there's so many ways to, to make choreography that are so much more rich and, and that, that um, enlist the talents of the people in the room. And to this day, like a lot of what I do that I love, I like basically stole from Dan Safer. Um, and, and then I, uh, when I started assisting, I actually assisted a director called Mark Brokaw um, who has a show on Broadway right now, How I Learned to Drive. And Mark, who remains one of my dear friends to this day, is like a very, um, he's one of the nicest people in show business. And he has a like very different style than me, or frankly, like most of the things that I am adjacent to creatively. And it was so helpful to be, to assist on plays that, I would never have made myself, if that makes sense. Like I was assisting on like naturalistic plays with a couch at like the Atlantic Theater Company. Um, and like, just like, I, ha I, I respect those plays. I have zero interest in those plays. I do not care about theater like that at all. Um, but I was in a room with like a really nice guy who like knew how to direct. And, uh, and it, 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 it was it was very meaningful to me to have this sort of like straightforward smarty pants theater guy on one end and like kind of like weirdo downtown mentors on the other and in some ways I think like the person that I continue to grow up to be because I certainly hope I'm not done with that 
is like somewhere in between those two things, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And so you mentioned on Elizabeth Suedo. So that leads me to ask about Runaways at Encores. And so how did that first happen? Um, all roads lead back to, usually all roads lead back to Shana Tal, Virginia Tesori. And that one started with both of them. Um, that, um, it's it's really weird. I don't know that I've ever told the story. Uh, it's not a complicated story. Um, my phone rang out of the blue one day and it was Janine Tesori, who I did not know. I mean, I knew who she was. Yeah. Um, and she was like, hey, I run this program called Encores Off Center and I'm doing uh, Runaways because uh, because I, you know, I believe that Liz Suedos is uh, a hugely underappreciated piece of musical theater history. And I want to, you know, celebrate her in this giant building at the time Liz was still alive. And Janine and Shana were working together. And Shana's one of my oldest friends. And so Janine was like, I think that Runaways has to be directed by one of the Liz Suedos people but I don't know the Liz Suedos people. And Shana Taub told me I should talk to some guy called Sam Pinkleton. So now I'm calling you. And so I was like, okay, like this is what? Um, and so I met with Janine and uh, I think like at our very first meeting, she was like, great, you're doing this, it's done. And I had to do, um, I, I, there were some things that I knew we needed to do to the show to be able to do it well at that time, which was 2016, I think. And so I went to Liz's house and Liz was quite sick and sort of talked her through what I hoped it could be to kind of get her blessing. And her blessing was basically um, just make it good. Like, I don't care what you do as long as you make it good. And then she died like a month later. Oh. Um, so like the development of that production was done entirely after her death which was very unexpected um so yeah and it like remains possibly the most special thing I've ever done and I think in some ways that's because it was very how it, how it was put together to answer your question was very pure you know and what were some of the changes you made or how did you approach it um I uh the the biggest thing I did, I guess, was, I mean, I, I, I made it 90 minutes long. Um, it was about two hours and 45 minutes long. Oh. Um, but I also, I thought the power of that show would come out of an ensemble of performers and the ensemble of performers was more important than like the individual roles. So originally it was like, you're playing Bobby and you're playing Katie. And I just cast a group of young people who I was obsessed with. Um, and I thought, okay, like all of these people together and what makes them different and what they share, like that's gonna be Runaways. And then we're gonna just take all of that material and just divide it up amongst them according to their individual superpowers, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I basically took her show and her text and just kind of redistributed it on another group of people and because I was doing it at Encores and I was like, I wasn't trying to make a long running show. I was doing something that was like totally combustible. I was able to make it for specific performers. And like, if I were to ever do Runaways again, I would want to do the same thing. I would want to start over, cast it, fall in love with everybody and then be like, oh, you should do this and you should do this. So you kind of create new roles based on personas because there's something about that show Um that requires the performers to kind of really be themselves right yeah like they're not they're not pretending to be homeless kids like that's super uncomfortable they're like there's something I hate to use this word but like there's something kind of Brechtian about it right like they're like we're actually just performers we go home at night but for the next 90 minutes we're going to take these stories on and that requires performers who are really comfortable being themselves yeah um, I'm giving you such long answers for a Sunday morning. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I love hearing them. Yeah. So um, I'd be curious to know one of the things you've done a lot of on Broadway is be the uh, movement director or movement consultant for a series of plays. And so when you look at a play, how do you decide how much movement you think should go into it? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, wait, can I ask you a question? Oh, what do you think? I'm asking everybody this these days. What do you think a movement director or a movement consultant on a play does? Well, um, I would guess like 
seen transitions maybe mm -hmm. like moving between and I mean if it is a play with a dance number in it or something like that or maybe like working with the actors like beyond what the director does to yeah these like, sort of teach them what he's what she's doing yeah <laughs> I appreciate that the answer just eventually falls off a cliff because that's exactly <laughs> how I feel too it's I mean I I ask you that because I have no idea what a movement director does on a play. And I'm currently doing my, I think, sixth Broadway show as a movement director on a play. And therefore, I think I'm supposed to have some kind of authority on how to answer that question. And like with every new play I do, I'm like, what's the job? <laughs> and so everything you just said, I've done, right? In various shows, like that, like I did a a play called Significant Other. And my job was simply to make two really delightful dances. That's it. And then I've done plays where I was doing transitions and I've done plays where I was like talking to people about like their posture, which I don't really know how to do. Um, so uh, can you go back to the original question? I wanna make sure that I'm answering it with the specificity that you asked it. Oh, yes. Um, well, so when you first look at like the text of a play, how do you decide how much movement? I mean, that's a conversation with the director, right? Like it, uh, I, if I'm, quote, movement directing, which is a fake word, by the way, <laughs> um, I think of myself as a designer, right? So like when you're a designer, you like meet with a director and you're like, hey, I respond to this. I respond to this. I found these images. Look at this. What do you think about this? And so it's kind of the same thing. Like I, I show up with like, I mean, if, if I'm the movement director, then I've been asked to do the job, right? I've been asked to come into something that's already moving. And so I download a lot of information. Here's why we're doing this. Here's what I care about. Here's who's in it, blah, blah, blah. And then I ask questions. And in those early days, I sort of figure out what my job is. And that's why I ask you, what do you think the job is? Because actually like it's, to me, it's less about how much movement is there? Because for example, the play that I'm doing right now, Macbeth, which is a title that I say, which I realize is very controversial, um, but you know, a lot of bad things have already happened at our show, so I don't think it can get worse. I'm just gonna keep saying Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. Uh, you know, this play, I think people who know me and kind of like quote what I do would see it and be like, what did you do? Like, did you like come to rehearsal ever? <laughs> There's like no movement in it. And it's been like a radically full-time job. Like I've, like I've done so much in it, but it's completely not like dance or like stylized movement. And that is because early on in my conversations with the director, I was like, oh, this is my job. Great. Because movement director, like there, it should be like 26 titles, you know? And you just like pick the one that works the best. Like person who did, person who made those two little dances person who made the transitions, person who like helped the ensemble feel like they weren't going crazy. Like these are all parts of the job. So it, it really depends on early days conversations with the director and movement director is a meaningless title. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my answer. So I'd love to ask you about um, Heisenberg, which you did with Mary Louise Parker, because that is such a, it's a two character play and on a somewhat small stage. And so what was your job like for that? Yeah, I mean, that weirdly, that job was, um, that job was about uh, one little dance. There was one little dance at the end. Um, and when I, and it was kind of a tango, kind of. <laughs> And so when Mark asked me to do it, I was like, I don't know how to tango. I'm not from Argentina. Like, what do I do? And, and, and I realized that um, the little dance in it wasn't about tango. It was about two humans at their most vulnerable kind of trying something new as a way to come together, right? It's like, it, like the movement assignment was actually a like totally human powered character driven thing disguised as a little dance. And so the kind of clumsiness to me of like this specific dance style that you can like pay $15 for and take a class in in Chelsea, um, 
excited me and made me feel like, oh, I understand why they asked me to do this. Like, it isn't about like an impressive, um, a, like um, accurate tango. It's about effort from two people. And so um, the amazing Chloe Treat, who was my assistant on that, and I like took some like amateur adult tango classes and like struggled through them. And the thing that I tried to transfer into the production was not like behold tango. I'm not authorized to do that. I'm not a tango expert, but rather the like sweetness of like trying to learn something that's really scary. Um, and I, 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 I don't know if you saw that play, but I, it, I like loved it so deeply. I like loved that moment. And it was, um, it was like a moment to me where dance did exactly what dance can do in a play, which yeah. is like give you so much more information than words ever could much more quickly. Um, and yeah, I, th I think about it very lovingly and I, I'm very happy that you asked about it. Oh yeah. And so um, what do you do when, I mean, I don't know specifically about Mary Louise Parker, but what do you do when you have to create dance for people who aren't mainly dancers? Um, feel happier. <laughs> oh. Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I reject outright not to get all dogmatic on you on a Sunday morning, but like, I think that our, listen, a professional dancer is a professional dancer. Like someone who has invested time and money and sweat into dance, especially a, a technical dance. I won't take that away from them. Right. Like they are, they are professional dancers. However, I think that theater especially can get quite limiting and dangerous in how we throw the word dancer around. And some of my favorite dancers in the entire world don't necessarily identify as dancers. Um, I think about a performer that I worked with in um, Amelie, Randy Blair, who is like the greatest mover on the planet. Like I only ever want to see him dance and like, I think the kind of like Broadway industrial system wouldn't call him a dancer. And that's, and I'm so much more interested in Randy as a dancer than like most Broadway dancers. Yeah. So I believe that to be a dancer, all you have to do is dance. And in fact, uh, like if I start running in that moment, I am a runner. If I start eating, I am an eater. So if I start dancing, I am a dancer. And I really like, honestly, the things that I've made that I'm the most proud of as a choreographer were powered by people who mostly don't identify as dancers. And I think it can be, and like part of that is just taste, right? Like I know there's choreographers out there who if they heard me say that, they would be like, please like arrest that man. But, but I also think that like, for me, working with quote, non-dancers can activate something really surprising, which can be fun for them, but also we're not making things for an audience of professional dancers. We're making things for an audience of humans. And I think it helps to see somebody do something that is maybe not traditionally virtuosic. I think that might be an opportunity to see yourself on stage, right? Like right now we love to talk about how people see themselves on stage. One of the ways you can see yourself on stage is to see somebody uh, uh, struggling with something, to see somebody with a body that is unexpected for the dance that they're doing. Um, so I never, I like, actively seek out experiences with dancers. And like, even when I'm doing, or with non-dance, not quote non-dancers. Um, and even if I'm doing like a big musical, like I, this musical, uh, Great Comet that I did, that was like a big ass Broadway musical, oh, yeah. a lot of dancing in it that had, you know, some of my, some of like the greatest dancers on Broadway in it, like Paloma Garcia Lee was in it. Who's like one of the, my favorite humans and favorite dancers, but she was dancing alongside someone playing an accordion who had never danced before. And in fact, and I think both Paloma and the person with the accordion would agree, the show wouldn't have been as good if all of those dancers were like Paloma. Yeah. Like, and, 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 and I, you know, even if I were doing Hello Dolly, I would really feel that way. Um, and, and that might just be me being bratty, but I, I, I really think there's like always power in asking people 
who are not usually asked to dance to dance. And it's kind of like one of the things that I feel the most fierce about. <laughs> and so with that perspective in mind, how do you run dance auditions? Um, um, I miss running dance auditions <laughs> a long time. Um, I, uh, if I get to run dance auditions the way that I like to run dance auditions, which sometimes time doesn't allow, dance auditions are about meeting people. They're not about seeing if people can dance. And that's a two-way street, right? It's like, hey, who are you? Like, what are you excited about? Also, here's who I am. Because I have seen in auditions, the stuff that I'm interested in and the thing, the way that I like to work with dancers isn't for everyone. And it's okay. Um, so like, for example, when we did Great Comet, like we would start with a conversation, we would warm up together, which I, I learned is really unheard of. I didn't know that. Um, I was never an assistant choreographer, so I never got to be in other people's dance auditions. So I, when I started running dance auditions, I just like made what I thought would work and only learned later that it wasn't like the way dance auditions are done, which I do not care about because it has worked for me. Um, so, uh, I like to like warm people up together. I like for everybody to introduce themselves and like share something silly about themselves. Like, I think it's, I think, you know, it's not a weird competition. It's actually like a work session. And I'm like, who's going to be fun to be in a room with? Who's going to be down to play and to create stuff? And usually, I mean, if I get to have my way, the first round of a dance audition is about the dancers creating things. Yeah. And playing together. And usually it's not until later that I'm like, okay, learn these steps. Here are some steps. Please learn them. Cause it's like, I guess technically, like we only have this much time. And like, if you, if you really struggle with learning those steps, it might not be fun for both of us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the like when we did Great Comet, like the final callback for the, dancer like the capital d dancer roles was like two hours of improvisation um which was like one of the most joyous dance experiences of my life and like to this day i run into dancers who are at that audition who were not cast and they're like i love that day <laughs> um so i like to me the entire audition process is about um identifying and celebrating people's individual humanity it's not about like can you do it or not yeah. Um, and I, that is, and like, I have had success in that. And I think that's part of why I've almost, when I have been in a position to run a dance audition, which like, I didn't run a dance audition on Macbeth. There is a dance in it. But when I'm doing a show where there is a dance audition, I'm trying to think. Every show I've done that with, we've ended up with a cast who is amazing. Like who loves each other and who are incredible in the room. Yeah, and I think part of that is because like you learn so much in a dance audition when it isn't just about steps. Steps are like the least important part. Yeah. Every choreographer in New York City is going to call me and be like, you're a monster <laughs> and you have to stop saying these things. And so I'd also be curious, how much say do you have over casting in say like Josh Groban or Daniel Craig or Philippa Sue, depending on? Um, <laughs> I mean, in those, in those specific, uh, in those specific examples, uh, not a lot. I mean, that's not true. I, I, I mean, Josh and Daniel, uh, I, I think it depends. I mean, I think like, you know, I, uh, like Daniel is how this production started. Like, and I also joined this production after it was mostly cast. Um, so that's, its own thing. I mean, if I'm doing a musical as a choreographer, uh, which which I should say, like, I'm, I sort of thought I had retired from being a choreographer, <laughs> but I guess I haven't. Um, uh, but if I'm doing a musical as a choreographer, I'm super involved in the casting process, super, yeah. super, super involved. And I've also had the great luck of work, you know, the examples you just gave, those directors are Pam McKinnon and Rachel Chafkin and Sam Gold. And those are all um, incredibly generous and open leaders who really welcome their team into their process. So like, that might not be the case with other directors. Yeah. I have to work with nice people. Um, but you know, if I'm, um, it's such a good question. If, if I, 
the, the, the answer is I'm as involved as the process will, needs me to be involved. And I think if it's a musical, I'm super involved. And if it's a collaborator who I've worked with a lot, then I might be involved just because they trust me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, one of the things you did with Rachel Kshavkin was um, sort of help to make The Great Comet bigger in order to go on a Broadway stage. And so what was that process like of taking what was at Ars Nova and, and expanding it? Um, that's not a question that I can answer in <laughs> 20 minutes. Uh, um, that process was a multi-year process that couldn't have existed without the step of the American Repertory Theater in Boston. Um, it really, like the experiment of Boston, you know, basically when, cause we, we after Ars Nova, we did it off Broadway in a tent. And that version really was just like a big version of Ars Nova. And, and I helped out, like there, I did, I like made some stuff in it, but like fundamentally it really was like the same idea. and. <laughs> The experiment of ART, I mean, I it, it was such an intense time that I my like individual memories of that show are not what I wish they were, which I, I'm so sad about. Um, but my memory of Boston was we're going to Boston to learn how to make this show bigger, right? We're going to Boston to actually figure that out. And I remember pretty distinctly Rachel being like, it's on you, Pinks. Like they're like because we were adding this ensemble, this like big ensemble. I'm like, what are they gonna do? Um, Cause there was no ensemble at Ars Nova. Um, and so there was a lot of trial and error at, in, in Boston and it was super joyous. And I think, you know, there was a lot of, <laughs> sort of like taking collective deep breaths as this thing turned into something that it didn't start as. And I think that could have been scary. And um, uh, I think of like one very specific breakthrough in Boston. I like remember when I, where I was standing at the time we were like in rehearsal at the Colonial Theater and Dave Malloy, we were like doing this number Balaga, which became a really oh. big dance number in the second act, which wasn't originally a really big dance number. And Dave Malloy was like standing in the middle of the stage and he was like, I think it needs a dance break. And like up until that point, the idea of that show having a dance break was like unheard of, it was like totally not that kind of show. And he was like, I, should we have a dance break? And I, of course, was like, add 20 dance breaks, we're here. And, but I could feel also that there was some like collective nervousness around like, wait, is that the show we're doing? And Dave sort of like went away and wrote some dance music and, and that grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And by the time we got to Broadway, it was like a nine minute number that ended in like everyone like breaking furniture over each other's heads. Um, but it was the seed of, what if it did this? That like totally turned the car around, if that makes sense. And like, by the time we got to Broadway where I had eight, 20 ensemble members, I think, I think there were 20 people in the ensemble. Um, it was a given. I mean, like the show was powered by people moving around the room and that was designed in a way that's not unlike how you would do the music man, you know? It just, it just like the process of making it was very different. Yeah. And so that's a show that would be, I'd be especially curious about, um, what is your job like when replacements come in, like <laughs> <laughs> like Mandy Patinkin, or that would have been, or Okrian Amdamwin, and are you involved in sort of helping them learn the choreography or? Is yeah, I, I mean, with that show, I mean, that show only ran for 10 months. So like, we didn't quite get to the place of figuring out how to make it a long running beast. Um, but, you know, it is something that I, uh, I answered a little bit like the dance call thing. Like, I don't understand totally how you um, make a show and then replace somebody and say, I need you to do exactly what that other person did. <laughs> Um, especially a show that is like supposed to be so human powered. So 
the way we built that show for the ensemble was like, you have to do this. You have to do one of these three things here. You have to do whatever you want here, but don't get hurt. Like it, we made like scaffolding, if that makes sense. Yeah. And when you brought somebody new in, you were kind of making a new version for them that fit within the structure, um, which was really just about safety, right? It was like, you can, you can do this as long as it X, Y, and Z. Um, and I, I think, you know, if that show had run for like 10 years, it would have given a lot of people a headache because <laughs> I felt very stubborn about that, you know, like, like not just being robots who learn tracks. Um, but it's a way of, it's a way of building a long running show that is not normal, I think. And actually like I have a show, my collaborator Anitaj and I have a show that's on a cruise ship right now, which is wild. And uh, we have two companies of it out and we're on the third cast. And so we, and, and, and it's, it's very much built with the same ethos of like celebrating the individuality of the performer. The performer has a lot of creative agency inside of it. And so we've had to figure out and we're still kind of refining, like how do you replace people in that? Yeah. And make it both feel safe for them and make it feel like the show and make it feel like them. And it's, it's very, very different than like, here's the steps, go there. <laughs> Yeah. And so before we um, close with talking about Macbeth, I would love to ask about one more show you did, which was uh, Soft Power at the Public Theater recently. And so how did that begin? <laughs> <laughs> um, how that began was Lee Silverman called me in 2017 and was like, I'm doing a musical that's the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Do you want to do it? And I was like, please tell me about it. And she told me about it. And I was like, that's the scariest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. Um, and, but you don't say no to Janine Tesori and David Henry Huang and Lee Silverman. Um, and at the time, Center Theater Group, which uh, is a wonderful, 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 wonderful theater in Los Angeles run by very nice people. Um, and so I was like, I'm terrified. I gotta do it. And the, the show has evolved so much over the last five years that like talking about the genesis of it feels strange because it's very different than the show that ended up on stage. And frankly, I think the show that would exist should it happen again. Um, but what excited me about it initially was two, two things. One was like centering a story and people that are like not always centered in the kind of musical theater experience. And the other was like the opportunity to really wrestle with like musical theater demons. Like I, I got to do all of this choreography that is like so far from what I usually do. Um, and that was like the choreography that like terrorized me as like a young theater student, right? Like I had people doing like, you know, leaps and pirouettes and stuff. And, um, and that puzzle, that like formal puzzle was like so hilarious and dazzling. And like, I never make choreography like that. I hate choreography like that. Um, but I got to do it with these like amazing dancers and these amazing performers. And we kind of got to create a so-called like traditional golden age musical, but with an entirely new set of rules. So the game of that was super enchanting to me um, on top of the collaborators just being like literally the greatest humans on the planet. Um, so it, it's been a very long road with soft power. Um, we've done like 900 different versions <laughs> of it. Um, there is a core group of performers who are like, I would like jump in front of a bus for. Um, and for that reason, I, I hope it gets to continue to live for them. But um, it, yeah, that shows a real adventure. And I, I will like never forget getting hooked into it and being like, what have I done? This is so scary. It's so ambitious. And did you do a lot of research for that show or do you like to do a lot of research as a choreographer? I love to oh. do research. And that show, I mean, that entire show is research. Um, it, it, which I like, I mean, I don't, I, I sort of, you know, that music, that like sort of traditional musical theater dance, like there's only so much there, you know, like there's not a ton of, like, I don't know how originality really works. I'm again, choreographers knocking at my door with pitchforks. 
Um, and so the fun of it to me was like figuring out all of the quotes, like figuring out all of the like, oh, this feels like this MGM movie and this feels like this Fred Astaire dance. And this feels like, you know, a sort of memory of this terrible racist musical. Um, and it was, it was actually very similar. I, one of my favorite things I've ever, 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 ever done was I did the, um, the New York production of this play called Mr. Burns by Ann Washburn. Um, that is basically like a group of people trying to like remember dances from music videos. And so I like the way you assemble the movement is, is, you know, through, um, research and and soft power is very much the same way so I, I I love that assignment I love it love it love it so then to talk finally um about Macbeth which you're doing now I'd love to know about your collaboration with Sam Gold a great director and what's that like <laughs> um all, continuous uh <laughs> all-consuming no Sam is Sam is uh 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 the greatest Sam is Sam is Sam Gold for a reason I came from, I think of myself as someone who came from downtown theater, which was people in a room not being paid much, trying to figure out what the most interesting thing is. And Sam, who, you know, has like kind of developed this persona as like fancy Broadway director, like he's the same way. Like he just wants like interesting people to be around to like figure out what's going to be good. Um, and and so, um, it's been an, uh, a pretty incredible collaboration that is very much ongoing because we're still figuring it out. Um, uh, because he has a real sense of openness actually and um, a real sense of wanting things to not suck <laughs> and wanting things to not be boring. And also um, I think, you know, one of the greatest qualities of a director is like the ability to let things go yeah. Like, oh, I thought that was a good idea. It's not. Let's not waste our time with it anymore. And so, um, you know, I think I was very intimidated coming into Macbeth because Shakespeare is um, something that I have managed to avoid for decades. Um, and I don't have any real comfort with it. <laughs> uh, but I was like, but Sam does and also Sam is like yeah the whole point of it is like make it not boring make it <laughs> you understand like make it and so uh I think our superpowers are really different which is part of why I like working with him so much and I trust working with him so much and like do, do I want to do 900 productions of Shakespeare after this I strongly <laughs> strongly do not uh but do I would I trust Sam Gold with nearly anything? Absolutely. And that's, uh, and you know, I think that's why he has like so many amazing collaborators who he works with a lot uh, because he works from a place of like openness and respect, I think, especially with team members. Yeah. And what have been, if you're allowed to say some of the sort of changes that you've made for this production or the way that you've looked at it for? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm allowed to say anything, uh, but, you know, um, our preview process has not been what we expected it to be. Yeah. Um, we got through three previews and like, you know, if you're doing a big Broadway play, um, your first three previews are basically just about survival. So we didn't make any substantial changes in those first three previews. And then people started getting COVID. And then we canceled for 11 days. Yeah. And when we came back, more people had COVID. And then more people had COVID. And then more people had COVID. So we had three previews. And then we had 11 days off. And then we put one person in. And then we put another person in. And then we put another person in. And so I'm being completely honest with you here. Um, a lot of the time that you would usually spend in previews to kind of like radically rethink things, we've spent it like merely surviving. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great show must go on narrative there, but at the expense of getting to do the kind of work in previews that you'd usually get to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, incredibly proud of our company, especially our cast who's worked their asses off, pardon my language. Um, and also I think a lot of the changes that you would expect to come in previews, we're just getting around to, 
you know, y- y- yesterday was supposed to be our like 20th preview. It was like our sixth preview. Oh. Um, so uh, I think there's changes coming this week. <laughs> and I feel very excited by the boldness of Sam and the gameness of our cast to like really still experiment until the last moment. But it's really hard to make theater right now, especially on Broadway. Yeah. Um, and I'm answering that question very differently than I think if we hadn't had such a kind of nightmare happen with COVID. Yeah. And so the very last question I'd love to ask you is what um, what kind of thing would you like to do in the future going forward? Is it is there a show you'd want to revive? Is a musical a play or? Um, what a great question. Uh, I, I don't have a title for you. The thing that I want to do is make, if, if I'm working in theater, which like, frankly, I don't know if I'm working in theater. Um, if I'm working in theater, I want to make things that uh, you don't have to like theater to enjoy um, and that don't necessarily um that that just like invite in experiences and things that people are excited about that like aren't necessarily just theater um you know I I I feel very energized by and and moved by what happened with American Utopia I think for my money it's the greatest musical that's ever been on Broadway I think it's the greatest piece of musical theater possibly um and there's people who would call it a concert you know and I think Annie B's choreography is like the greatest musical choreography there's ever been. And so I, if, I, if, I were, if I were to be able to snap my fingers and do anything, I would be making work that, um, you know, a bunch of different people come to with a lot of experiences. And if you ask that person what they saw, they would be like, I saw a musical. And if you ask that person what they saw, they would be like, I was at a party. And if you ask that person what they saw, they would be like, I was at a concert and they were all right no one was wrong. Um, And that could be many different things, right? Like you could do that with a a musical, you could do that with a band. Um, But I'm, I'm, I'm invested in the long term health of musical theater as an art form. And I'm not particularly excited by the boundaries that we've set for ourselves at the highest level. And so with the exception of a few artists, namely Michael R. Jackson. Um, and so, yeah, I think anything I would wanna do is about sort of exploding the possibilities of the form to make uh, an experience for an audience that they couldn't have in their underpants at home. And that, reminded them that they're alive because you know being dead is always available and it's really amazing that we get to be alive and get to be in rooms together um and so if I'm gonna make things in a big room after I do Shakespeare on Broadway for the first and last time I want those things to be really loud and really colorful and really sweaty yeah (laughs) well that's very inspiring and thank you (laughs) Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I have an unusual episode for you. In October of 2020, when I was first starting this podcast, I had an idea to do a series of interviews with four different types of designers. Unfortunately, I was only able to talk to one, so it was never released. But now, in honor of her return to Broadway with POTUS, I'm releasing my talk with costume designer Linda Cho, whose other credits include this season's Take Me Out, plus Grand Horizons, The Great Society, The Lifespan of a Fact, Anastasia, The Velocity of Autumn, and A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, for which she won a Tony. She also helped with the recent redesign of Joe Allen, a New York institution. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.